Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 22nd, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, considering sailing at uh, appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week, we're doing a very early preview of a Ninth Circuit water law case the U.S. Supreme Court just decided to take on board next term. It will resolve a circuit split and clarify the contours of a seminal environmental statute, the 1972 Clean Water Act. The question presented is, at least in environmental law terms, a fairly straightforward one, whether a Clean Water Act permit is required when a party indirectly discharges pollutants into some body of water that's under the Act's purview, or in more technical statutory parlance, whether pollutants discharged into what's known as a point source, which then eventually end up in a navigable waterway, are subject to Clean Water Act regulation, or whether an intermediary step, in this case the passage of pollutants through a few miles of groundwater between a wastewater plant and the Pacific Ocean, renders the law inapplicable. The county of Maui argued the latter to the Ninth Circuit. The county operates that wastewater reclamation facility in Lahaina on Maui, The plant is situated about five miles inland. As part of its disposal practices, the plant injects daily about three to five million gallons of treated sewage into deep subterranean wells. According to an EPA study, that wastewater then mixes in with the groundwater, and a good portion of it eventually emerges out of submarine ocean seeps off the beaches a few miles away, where plaintiffs say the wastewater damages sensitive coral reef and marine life. The county has been doing that within the constraints of certain regulatory regimes, like those of the Safe Water Drinking Act and state and local rules, but it never had a Clean Water Act permit, and the Ninth Circuit held last March that it needed one. The county argues that ruling dramatically and erroneously expands the scope of the Clean Water Act. The environmental plaintiffs say it merely applies the statute sensibly and in line with high court precedent. Since the ruling, two other circuits have decided similar matters. The Fourth Circuit saw things the same way as the Ninth. The Sixth Circuit didn't. And now, SCOTUS will settle the question. But before they do, we'll hear competing views on the case. In just a few minutes, we'll be joined by the plaintiff's attorney, David Henkin, from Earth Justice. Then we'll hear from Andre Monette, a Best Best and Krieger who represented an amicus cohort of California and national public agencies in support of the county of Maui here. Before hearing from our guest, though... Let me remind you, as always, that you are very cordially invited to claim one hour of CLE credit for having tuned into this episode. It's easy enough to do. Just find a short true-false test. It's located on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Take that and one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Claiming that credit and tendering the modest fee to do so is tremendously appreciated as it helps us to continue to provide this show outside of our usual paywall. Okay, now it's time for our opening briefs. In more immediate Supreme Court news, the High Court returned to action this week in fairly conspicuous fashion. It issued three opinions. The most notable one affirmed that the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause does apply to state actors, and thus prohibits things like disproportionate civil asset forfeitures imposed on criminal defendants. Advocates against such forfeitures have long been complaining that local law enforcement agencies and governments rely too heavily on the practice more to keep their books balanced than to affect criminal justice. And in a per curiam ruling, the court for a second time blocked Texas from executing a prisoner with severe intellectual disabilities. In an earlier ruling, the high court said Texas focused not enough on Bobby James Moore's deficits. That same concern drove Tuesday's ruling, in which the chief justice concurred, while Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented. And in a cert denial dissent, Justice Thomas articulated his skepticism as to the constitutional basis of 
the long-standing libel law doctrine created in New York Times v. Sullivan, which set up the defendant-friendly actual malice standard and has stood as fairly hallowed-seeming precedent for over 50 years. None of Thomas's colleagues joined his dissent, so it remains too early to forecast whether the libel laws will be opened up anytime soon. For now, though, stay tuned to the Daily Journal reporting and commentary on the question. In the Ninth Circuit, it was a quiet, short President's Day week, just one opinion issued in an insurance dispute, and an order came down this morning in one of the cases affected by Judge Reinhardt's passing last year. Reinhardt had issued the majority opinion last March in favor of an asylum applicant, and as the case was petitioned for a hearing and re- hearing on Bonk, Judge Merguia was drawn to fill Reinhardt's spot. Those petitions remain pending, but Friday's order included an amended dissent from Judge Trott, in which he argues the majority opinion establishes too lenient a standard in the context of weighing the credibility of and evidence presented by an asylum petitioner. Last March, a collection of environmental plaintiffs prevailed at the Ninth Circuit in a case that SCOTUS has now taken up to clarify the contours of the 1972 Clean Water Act. David Hankin represents those plaintiffs. He's a staff attorney with Earth Justice in Honolulu, Hawaii. He joins us now. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so you argued this case and prevailed at the Ninth Circuit. Now, after the, the circuit this week, of course, your your work will continue. Case centers around the, the Clean Water Act. So let's, let's dive into to a couple of specific pieces of that statute that are um, central to the case. Uh, so top line, most important provision of, of the law is it prevents discharge of pollutants by any person and sort of specifically prevents the addition of pollutants to navigable waters from a point source. And those two terms seem very important here, navigable waters and point source. And let's start with the first one, navigable waters. That specification seems to sort of ensure that the law is is aimed and prevents pollution of you know the larger more significant bodies of water like oceans and rivers and tributaries that might provide uh, room for argument by lawyers like yourself as to whether the more sort of smaller bodies of water or, or different types of water like groundwater also are referred to by that term tell me a bit more about what the navigable water term refers to well you're right that it, that what the scope of a navigable water is uh, is a matter of interpretation and debate. The Supreme Court has been clear that it is not limited to waters that are navigable. In fact, uh, EPA is currently in the process of revising its rulemaking on the waters of the United States. And I guess fortunately for, for me, it's not relevant to our case. Our case involves discharges to the Pacific Ocean, that under anyone's interpretation of navigable waters is a navigable water. Under the existing waters of the United States rule, the ocean is navigable water. Under the proposed rule, it's navigable water. And I think it would be hard to say with a straight face that the Pacific Ocean is not navigable. The other aspect of the case uh, that helps make this current debate over waters of the United States irrelevant is that the Ninth Circuit expressly stated that it was not rendering any decision on whether the groundwater underneath the wastewater facility that is uh, the subject of the lawsuit, uh, they, they, they made clear that they are not saying that that's a water of the United States and that that's not necessary to their ruling. So they, they expressly reserved on that question whether the groundwater could itself be considered a water of the United States. Instead, 
uh, what they did was focus on the very clear, plain language of the Clean Water Act, which prohibits discharges to navigable waters. And it is undisputed in this case that the county of Maui intentionally built a wastewater treatment plant that every day discharges three to five million gallons of treated sewage into injection wells directly into the groundwater underneath the facility, and that the treated wastewater is then discharged into the Pacific Ocean, which is the water of the United States. So those are actually all undisputed facts. The county has never disputed anything that I just said, and if they did, they wouldn't have a basis for it because although uh, there had been a number of studies in the nearshore waters uh, near the wastewater facility finding the telltale fingerprint of the treated sewage, uh, EPA took it upon itself in 2011 to do a tracer dye study and put some tracer dye into the injection well, and lo and behold, it came out in the ocean very close to the shore. So it's never been a matter of dispute in our case, which is why we prevailed at summary judgment rather than at trial. Okay, tell me just a tiny bit more about what these injection wells are. Like essentially, we're just talking about very deep holes in the ground at this wastewater facility where they you know, get a bunch of water, as you say, uh, millions of gallons per day come in from residents around the, the plant and the water is, is treated. And then it seems like most of it is injected into these these wells, as you say, that, that then ends up in the in the groundwater, right? Absolutely correct. So this is the primary wastewater treatment facility for West Maui. So any of your listeners who have gone to Lahaina or Kanapali or any of the resorts along the west shore of uh, Maui, this is where your wastewater went. They built the facility uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. It went into service in 1982. And when they were designing the facility, they had a couple of different designs in mind. Uh, One possible design was a deep ocean outfall, so a pipe that goes deep into the ocean. That's a common way for coastal cities to dispose of their wastewater. And there's likewise no dispute in the case that if the county had pursued that option, it would have needed a Clean Water Act permit for the discharges from that pipe that goes directly into the deep ocean. The county instead decided to build an injection well. So it drilled first two and then it added another two. So now four injection wells deep into the ground. So these are pipes uh, that go directly into the groundwater, directly into the aquifer. I've seen some stories written in the, in the popular press on the case that talks about how the wastewater seeps through the soil down to the groundwater. And that's not what's going on here. As you can imagine, if you have three to five million gallons of treated sewage every day uh, to dispose of, you wouldn't put it in something that then has to percolate down through rock and soil and all that. They put it directly into the groundwater that then flows into the ocean. And the record is clear. And again, we won summary judgment. When they did the environmental impact statement for the facility in the 70s, they said the wastewater will go into the ocean. So they've always known that they were disposing treated sewage into the ocean. So I guess, you know, the case is a very clean set of facts on this issue. Uh, Does the Clean Water Act create, as the county would have it, a gaping loophole that allows polluters to evade the need for uh, any regulation of their pollution of our oceans and rivers and lakes, anything that is undeniably water of the United States, merely because they dispose of it through groundwater rather than have the pipe go directly into the receiving water. And you referenced it a couple of times now. We should be clear, the 
claim you and, and the environmental parties you're representing is making is not that a, a plant like this one is forbidden under the Clean Water Act from disposing of some amount of its wastewater, only that it has to get a permit first to do it, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I appreciate the clarification. Now, the Clean Water Act only prohibits unpermitted discharges of pollutants, and the whole reason behind that is Congress saw the wisdom of making sure that whatever people are depositing into our our nation's waters are not going to adversely affect the chemistry, the biology, or other features of that water. Now, when the county built its facility, as I mentioned, they knew that the the, all of these millions of gallons would end up in the ocean. Uh, I, I don't suggest they had any particular ill will. They probably didn't know that they would have the bad luck of drilling into an aquifer that discharges very close to shore in the middle of a coral reef. And uh, there have been peer-reviewed studies done by the U.S. Geological Survey and researchers at the University of Hawaii that have confirmed that because of these discharges of uh, treated sewage that have very, very high nutrient levels into uh, the coral reef, they're destroying the reef. And that's unfortunate. Maui relies uh, on tourism, and in particular uh, tourism of uh, snorkeling and other ocean recreation for its livelihood. And you, know, you said this case started some time ago. It actually started four years before we filed suit. In 2008, um, Earth Justice, together with our community clients, all of our clients are Maui residents, um, went and petitioned their uh, their mayor and asked them to fix the problem because there's a very elegant and simple solution here, which is the treated wastewater is destroying the reef, but it's also a valuable uh, freshwater resource in West Maui, which is a very dry part of the of the island and the, and the state, and has a need for fresh water for irrigation for golf courses, for agriculture, for landscaping. And the county has an ordinance that says that if they pipe this treated wastewater to your property, you need to use it. And so we encourage the county to build uh, infrastructure so that they could reuse the wastewater uh, rather than inject the wastewater and in so doing destroy the reef. Uh, unfortunately, the county decided to, to litigate the issue uh, rather than simply invest in uh, some infrastructure that would have solved two problems, protected the reef and uh, allowed for Maui County to meet its water needs. Yeah, that was going to be one other question I had for you is, is presumably wastewater treatment facilities must end up with some uh, quantum of unusable dirty water they you know just have to get rid of. But you're saying that a good portion of that could be recycled in, in different ways? Absolutely. And, you know, back to your previous statement, about uh, the Clean Water Act, and we're not arguing that they can't inject anything ever. Uh, what we're saying is that they can't inject without a permit, and that permit would have to ensure that the quality of the nearshore receiving waters is protected, and the area in which the discharges are coming up out of the reef are destroying the reef, and they're also what's known as a water quality limited segment. So they are, the state of Hawaii has listed these waters under the Clean Water Act as impaired for precisely the types of pollutants that the Maui County is discharging, which is nutrients. And so if they complied with the, with the law, they would have a permit that would tell them what quantity of injectate they could put into their injection wells and would end up in the ocean and what the quality of that would be. So they might need to, for example, remove nutrients if they are going to inject. We mentioned at the top that 
The Clean Water Act regulates pollution that comes from a point source. I understand that point sources are sort of discernible, sort of specific, discrete things you can sort of point at and say there is where the pollutant is coming out. You know, sort of the essential uh, archetypal example would be a pipe uh, dumping out uh, sewage into a river or a lake or something like that. This is one thing upon which most parties or all parties also agree that these wells are rightly defined as point sources. And so the wells themselves uh, could be regulated by under the Clean Water Act, right? Absolutely correct. Uh, again, undisputed in this case that the four injection wells, which are pipes, uh, are classic point sources within the meaning of the Clean Water Act. Uh, the county has never disputed that. What they've said is that uh, liability would only attach if the pipes discharge directly into the Pacific Ocean uh, rather than uh, into the groundwater, which then everyone knows and science has proved flows into the Pacific Ocean and does it relatively quickly. The county's theory, uh, with due respect, would blow a major loophole into the Clean Water Act, making it very easy for polluters to circumvent the law and sully our nation's waters. Uh, all you'd have to do is, if you had a pipe discharging pollutants, instead of having it go directly into an ocean river or lake, you would move it five feet back from the shore. And then it wouldn't be directly from the point source. It would be from the land or from the parking lot or from, you know, whatever, getting into the ocean. Or you could hang the pipe. I mean, uh, if you can envision a pipe on a river bank and it's not actually into the river, but it's over the river, then the county would argue, no, it's discharging from the air, not from the pipe, because it goes from the pipe into the air, into the water. And if it's not directly into the water, it's not regulated. And, and that's absurd. I mean, that practical reality certainly makes sense in the, the, the picture you describe. I certainly could see a party arguing that. But what um, what are some, I guess, the the legal and precedential arguments that you bring to bear on, on your side? The, the Central Clean Water Act, or at least the most recent one case from the U.S. Supreme Court, the Rapinoe's case that sort of balkanized the court at the time, seems to be one that both sides cite for authority here. I guess it, it, it seems like there is good language sort of that could use, be used on both sides. But uh, one of the quotes from the plurality of Justice Scalia would seem to suggest that indirect pollutant emission like this that travels through some intermediary that you might not be able to call a navigable water it is still regulatable under the Clean Water Act. You know, am I reading that right? What, what do you think of Rapinoe's application in this context? Well, you're absolutely right. Justice Scalia didn't merely suggest that. He said it expressly. He said uh, he rejected arguments that the Clean Water Act regulates only discharges from point sources directly to the navigable waters. He said the, the statute does not have the word directly. It says discharges to. And even if the discharge initially is into a water that is not considered a water of the United States, but it then flows naturally into the water of the United States, it would be regulated under the Clean Water Act program for point source discharges, Section 402. He was quite clear about that. He was joined by three other conservative justices. He had the narrowest view uh, of the jurisdictional reach of the Clean Water Act. Certainly, Justice Kennedy, who wrote his own separate concurrence, and the four uh, more liberal justices who dissented in, in, in that case, did not share the view of the county that the only thing uh, that is regulated is where the pipe sticks directly into the water 
uh, with no land or air uh, in between. Okay. Um, then why in, say, here the, the Sixth Circuit has come down differently on the same question also this past year, you know, why doesn't Rapinoe sort of end the inquiry if Justice Scalia in, in this clearly analogous case says it doesn't have to be a direct, you know, from the source of pollution to the navigable waterway situation. You know, what are the arguments that say the Sixth, the Sixth Circuit found to prevail there and the arguments the county brings to bear as to you know why that isn't sort of the controlling and, and clearly applicable rule to, to, to go with here? Well, with respect to the Sixth Circuit, it's important to note that the, there were two companion cases that were heard by the same three-judge panel in the same sitting, one out of Tennessee, one out of Kentucky. And in both cases, they posed this particular question. And in both cases, it was a 2-1 split. So you didn't actually have three judges disagreeing with the ninth and the fourth. You had two that went well out of their way to create a circuit split, and quite consciously so. If you read the opinions, those two judges very deliberate in wanting to create a split. Uh, they had alternate bases on which they could have resolved the case in the way that they wanted to resolve it, and they said, no, we're not going to resolve it on, on those grounds. We're going to go directly to the issue of whether the Clean Water Act regulates uh, discharges that get into navigable waters through groundwater. I, you know, I, I would counsel your readers to check out the opinions. I think that they got it wrong. Um, I really can't see how you could square their interpretation with either what Justice Scalia said in Rapinoe's or, for that matter, what the intent of the Clean Water Act is. I think the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit got it absolutely correct. And it's not only the Ninth and the Fourth Circuit, but the Environmental Protection Agency has been taking consistent positions that, under the appropriate facts, discharges via groundwater are regulated by Clean Water Act permits, not because the groundwater is regulated, but because the receiving water, the navigable water, is regulated. And as the Ninth Circuit pointed out, under the appropriate facts, these are the functional equivalent of a direct discharge. There's no difference to the ocean that the injectate from the county's facility went via groundwater than if they had discharged it directly into the ocean, causing the same harm, raising the same concerns that Congress tried to address. And EPA has not only made uh, repeated pronouncements in the Federal Register under both Democratic and Republican administrations uh, since the early 90s, but they've actually been issuing permits in states and jurisdictions where they have primary authority under the Clean Water Act to administer this program. So they, you know, they issue these permits for discharges via groundwater, whether it's in the case of mining or wastewater treatment facilities or so forth. So no one heretofore before the Sixth Circuit made its decision, uh, those two judges in September, uh, well, I take that back. There are district courts that have gone the other way. Uh, they've largely focused on whether the groundwater itself is regulated under the Clean Water Act, uh, and that's not a position uh, that the Ninth Circuit took, and it's certainly not necessary to resolve the case in our favor. Okay, uh, one other central argument that I've seen raised in the competing papers is that you want to avoid creating the situation where there's too much sort of regulatory redundancy, the claim being that even if the uh, the facility here doesn't have a Clean Water Act permit, that it has a permit based on another environmental statute, the Safe Water Drinking Act, based and, and that permits their injection into the ground, these this effluent. You know, 
I guess what is the core response to that idea that this these injections are already regulated by another federal permitting regime? But, but of course they're not. As the Safe Drinking Water Act's name suggests, its goal is to protect the safety of drinking water. The Clean Water Act is uh, designed to protect the biological, chemical, and physical integrity of our nation's waters, including the ocean, which is not drinking water. So it's true. The County of Maui has uh, Safe Drinking Water Act permits for underground injection control wells, and those are designed and operate to protect sources of drinking water, which are not threatened by the county's injection wells. What is threatened is the marine environment, including a a formerly pristine reef at Kahikili Beach in West Maui. And the Safe Drinking Water Act says absolutely nothing about that. It's not concerned about protecting the receiving waters when they're not drinking water. So apples and oranges. You mentioned that earlier on that if this decision were to be reversed and it'd be the situation where a permit weren't required here, it would, cre- it would create sort of a uh, obvious loophole in the Clean Water Act. I mean, that certainly wouldn't be the first time that a statute had loopholes in it that were unfortunate. You know, why not, what would you say to the argument that perhaps this is a, a problem for Congress to solve for them to come in and say, hey, when we drafted the Clean Water Act, we meant it applies in this situation if there's some pollutant that is indirectly dumped into navigable waters. Well, uh, that presupposes that the plain language of the statute doesn't already address this question. And as Justice Scalia pointed out in Rapanos, it does. Congress did not prohibit direct discharges. It prohibited discharges to navigable waters, which is what we have here. And it's it's specifically this type of fact situation that Justice Scalia addressed in his opinion. You discharge into something that's not a navigable water, and it naturally flows into a navigable water. He said, don't worry, it's just as regulated under Section 402 of the Clean Water Act. So the statute already says what Congress meant, and when you interpret a statute, you also look at the statutory purpose, and the statutory purpose is to protect the physical, biological, and chemical integrity of our nation's waters, and to interpret the statute Uh, in the way that the county suggests, as the Ninth Circuit aptly put it, would make a mockery of the Clean Water Act. To allow the county to do indirectly what it could not do directly would make a mockery of the law. And so we feel that it's, it's quite clear that the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit got it right. We expect the court to interpret the law fairly and as written. And of course, if Congress did not mean that, Congress can amend the law to say, no, we don't mean to reach indirect discharges, but that's not what they said. Okay, maybe just, you know, one last one. We've referenced a couple of the justices that were on the court, and I believe it was 2006 when the Rapinoe's decision came down. It's something of a different court now. Of course, Justice Scalia is not there any longer. Do you have any preliminary thoughts on how this newly constituted court might approach this question, uh, might regard the the split and specifically, I guess, the precedent of, of Rapanos. Obviously, as we mentioned, it's a, sort of a split one. There's no majority opinion. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, there's no, there is no majority opinion uh, in, in Rapanos. That's true. But all nine justices would agree with the proposition of an indirect discharge. So the, the most conservative view was the one, the most limited view, rather, most limited view of the statute was articulated by Justice Scalia. And it's that 
most restricted view of the interpretation of the statute that the Ninth Circuit relied on and that we're relying on. So we would expect that across the spectrum of the court, they would follow that logic. Well, I'm sure you have much work to do on this case now that it's got the Supreme Court grant to us. I'll let you get to it. David Henkin, staff attorney with Earth Justice. Thanks for being on our show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Among the parties hoping for a reversal of the Ninth Circuit decision are municipal and state governments seeking greater autonomy over regulatory regimes impacting their lands and waters and seeking more cost-efficient methods of providing public services like wastewater treatment. Andre Munet is part of a team from Best Best and Krieger representing an amicus cohort including such parties as to the Clean Water Act permits. And let me mention here that in the conversation he'll refer to those permits by a more technical acronym. NPDES, or NIPDES, stands for the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. As to those permits, Andre says they are not required, and the Clean Water Act doesn't apply to circumstances like those at issue here, where a facility discharges pollutants into groundwater, not directly into a larger body of water. To explain that argument further, he's here now. Andre, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. So uh, you represent a group of Amici here, you and your team from Best Best and Krieger. Largely, that group comprises California public agencies tasked with sanitizing water. Um, they, of course, hope the, the decision here from the Ninth Circuit is reversed. And you argue that, specifically, the decision should be overturned because the activity by the county of Maui at this wastewater treatment facility in Lahaina is not reached by the Clean Water Act. It doesn't require a Clean Water Act permit. You know, Broadly speaking, and then we'll dive into some more specifics, but uh, what is your argument as to why that's the case? Can I start with the, the amici that, that we're representing here? Because I, I think it's broader than the coalition that, that you mentioned. We sure. have very strong uh, people or entities from California that are focused on, on sewage treatment, but also potable water supply and stormwater management. And But it's not just California. We're, the, the entities that signed on this brief include the... Uh, National Association of Clean Water Agencies, the National Water Resources Association, the uh, National Association of Counties, the National League of Cities. So, I mean, it's it's much bigger than just California, um, and I'm obviously very honored to be able to to represent them in that capacity. But I think it speaks to the import that this case that has its genesis out of Maui and uh, you know on the the coast there in discharging in Lahaina has, has national implications, especially now that it's reaching the United States Supreme Court. So, but to answer your specific question, which was, again, why do I think that, or why do we think that the, the Clean Water Act's NPDES permitting program does not apply to the discharges at issue in this case, those uh, coming from the, the Lahaina Wastewater Treatment Plant? You know, I think that the answer is, in many ways, very simple, and that's that the, the, the Clean Water Act does not apply to discharges to groundwater. And it, it, that's the way it's been treated up until the Ninth Circuit made its decision in this case. The, the Clean Water Act, as, as many of the listeners will know, I'm sure you know, it really divides the universe into uh, the universe of discharges into discharges that come from point sources and those that come from non-point sources. The point sources are are things defined in the Act as as any discernible, confined, and discrete conveyance. Very very broad description. There are some exceptions. 
course, point sources are subject to the, the permitting program. Non-point sources are supposed to be regulated by the states under, under their program. But as far as what qualifies as a point source, again, it's a very broad definition, so broad that there have to be listed exceptions for things like irrigation return flows. But when you say it's any discrete conveyance, you're implicitly excluding things like sheet flow over the ground and obviously diffuse flows and, and flows through groundwater. And traditionally, courts have been reticent to expand that definition to regulate um, groundwater. And this goes back to the, to the 70s. So that, that's our view of the universe to start with. But then we also get behind that and peel it back and look at the policy reasons as to why Congress would have made that distinction in the first place. And so, you know, our, our view of that is it's very difficult to regulate discharges that go through groundwater and into waters of the United States uh, because there's a lot of places where it can come out. Uh, so how do you measure where each point is? And there are a lot of things that can happen to the groundwater, uh, to the you know, your discharge as it flows through groundwater. You're dealing with a different environment there. Sometimes there's no oxygen. Sometimes that makes so that that makes it so that chemicals in, in the water might change and change phase. And how do you predict those kinds of things? Very strong science goes into that kind of thing in, in terms of groundwater cleanup um, and a lot of unknowns. And certainly enough that uh, Congress, you know, I believe my feeling is that Congress looked at that and said, let's just leave that and, and let the states handle it instead. And, and, and think to demonstrate that even further, the regulations that are developed by EPA to implement the, the point source program, the, the NPDES program, are all aimed at discharges to um, surface waters. Uh, and the, sort of the science and the chemistry and, and it goes into establishing standards of discharge um, are all aimed at what, what happens in a, in a surface water environment. So together, all of that really adds up to view of the Clean Water Act that, that would not apply the NPDES program to discharges that flow through groundwater. That, that'll make sense. Let me push back a little bit on a, a couple of things there. Of so, course. you know, it, it certainly makes sense that it, it must be difficult to track where some sort of um, effluent discharge goes once it goes into the groundwater. But in this particular case, you know, as the Ninth Circuit cites, there's an EPA study performed a few years ago that shows pretty clearly that this plant, which is only, you know, four or five miles from the ocean, clearly a, a navigable water uh, governed by the Clean Water Act, it's close by. And the, the study shows that a, a good amount, I think they said 64% of the the water put into at least a couple of these wells, the, the treated wastewater shows up uh, outside of some of these submarine vents and the nearby ocean. So the connection is pretty discernible here. And on the one end, you have what I think all the parties agree is a point source, these wells. On the other end, the navigable waterway, the ocean. And in between, it's just, you know, a few miles of groundwater. And the thought is, you know, does that really change that much that there's just a, a bit of intermediary waterway that this has to travel through that changes the, the analysis such that the Clean Water Act doesn't apply? You know, what's your thought on that? Well, I think, you know, from pure, pure textual perspective, I think, yes, you know, we've got to draw a line somewhere and this is, this is where the line is. And sometimes you're going to, anytime you have to draw lines in the law, you end up with situations that get very close. And so that's, that's sort of my bright line answer to start with. But, you know, to get into the facts there, there, there's a couple of, I think there were two wells and, and one of them showed a very quick transport, not very quick, but in, in groundwater terms very quick, meaning over a period of weeks, water would get from the point that the wells discharged into the ground out into the ocean. But there was a second well where the, it wasn't determined 
it was very hard to determine. And, and the timeline was very unclear. And so the data was basically dropped. The basis of the case is about the well, basically, that you've mentioned, where we, we've got a very a relatively short transport time in terms of groundwater, and, and you can trace it back. So yeah, there's one, but there are other wells that are going into groundwater there. And, and studies have had a difficult getting that connection together. And to me, that illustrates the point that it's hard to find where your this point of discharge is going to be. And, and beyond that, there's, there's other issues that also complicate it. It's not just what, what can happen in, in the groundwater that could change your chemical profile, but also timelines. So, so you've got a fast one at one of these wells at Lahaina, but there are others that can take a lot longer. And, and where do you draw the line on that? When we get to the, to the Ninth Circuit and now the Supreme Court, where we've got case law making a standard that's got to be applied across the country, so how do you draw those lines? There, you've got to draw them somewhere. There's always going to be some more coming up. Groundwater can take a really, really long time to travel to places where it might end up in waters of the United States. And and if everything's subject to the MPDS permitting program, how do you? I mean, it's it's very unwieldy to, to try and manage that kind of a thing. I think it's worth noting too, the alternatives in Lahaina were pretty limited, and that we've got this this wastewater treatment plant that, that produces recycled water. And it serves that recycled water to the community in that area. And it's used for golf courses, it's used for landscape irrigation. And, but not all of it can be put to use. So the remainder is put into the ground. But the alternative is building a pipeline out into what are very sensitive waters and just putting it offshore. It's a whale reserve. It's an area that's, that's frequently used by, you know, for recreation. If it's, you know, if you've been there, it's a stunningly beautiful place. And putting the water in the ground versus putting it a pipeline out into that area seems to be the lesser of two evils in my mind. And, you know, in terms of a case like this kind of speaks to why would you choose that option in the first place? As you say, you know, if, if there are some closer calls that, that, you know, require some tricky line drawing, and perhaps this case represents one, maybe I could pose an even trickier case, you know, as you say, the wastewater plant could, as an alternative to uh, discharging the water straight into the ground, um, you know, another alternative could be to pipe it out to the ocean directly. Okay, now, if it goes all the way out there and then it's dumped directly into the navigable waterway, clearly that's a Clean Water Act situation. But if the pipe were to go almost to the ocean and, and drop, say, Hundred yards from it, you know, mm-hmm. onto the yeah. ground. There, you know, is that? It seems like the law or the the rule that you're proposing would create a situation where that, just by virtue of it not quite going out to the water, isn't uh, regulatable under the Clean Water Act. But pretty clearly, right. how close? Would get how close can you get? Right. Yeah. I, it's a, it's it's always a fun mental exercise. How close can you get to the edge of the waters of the United States with your discharge and still be allowed to to call it? non-point source, right? And it, and it's, I, I think people struggle with that. You've got to draw a line somewhere. And there have been court cases that say, you know, storm drain discharges that then uh, just kind of go out and turn into sheet flow and then, and then go into waters of the United States are going to be covered under the, under the um, MPDS program. But in that case, the, the, the storm, the stormwater discharges that were, what left the pipe were, became sheet flow actually did channelize and, and you could find continued discrete conveyance. Maybe that's not all that different from the, from the, from the groundwater 
geology going on in Lahaina. But I think it, we struggle with, with, with bright line rules like that. Um, in this case, I think that the policy of, of encouraging or just allowing a lot of the activities that, that um, this case implicates weighs in favor of, of continuing to regulate these kinds of discharges under the non-point source program um, and under other, other federal rules and regulations that cover you know, things like the Superfund Act or RICRA or things like that. But, I, you know, this also implicates the amicus brief that the United States government filed in the, in the, in the Ninth Circuit chiefly the EPA and the Department of Justice, but they, they, were, they were promoting a rule that would cover discharges that go to groundwater that are hydrologically connected, directly hydrologically connected to waters of the United States. It's an interesting dynamic because that brief was filed right at the end of the Obama administration. And more recently, the, the Supreme Court asked the federal government to weigh in on whether or not it should accept review in this case. Uh, and the Department of Justice responded saying, yes, you should accept review, but they didn't really mention their, their uh, prior amicus or set a position out. Partly that's because they weren't asked on point, but also we've had a change of administration and it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes um, as far as what position the Department of Justice takes and what position EPA takes on this. But I think that, that notion of you're going to, you're going to take that pipe right up to the line and where do you draw it? EPA tried to put it put it that way, and and uh, you know from my perspective, I think that the the right answer remains in this case having having uh, a hands off approach under the under the uh, MPDS program. One interesting facet of this case, I thought, is the the fact that all parties also sort of uh, agree or not agree, but cite to the same case as supporting their position. You know, the Supreme Court doesn't deal with water law cases all that terribly often. So, uh, you know, one of the most recent ones, the Rapanos case from, I think, 2006, is cited in, in mm-hmm. you know, the briefs on, on all sides as supporting the, the different positions. The Ninth Circuit cited it specifically for the language that Justice Scalia wrote saying, uh, which seems to be on point here, that the Clean Water Act, you know, doesn't forbid direct uh, pollution to navigable waterways, just pollution to navigable waterways, stressing that it doesn't have to be absolutely direct. You know, why? what's the strongest argument that that doesn't sort of control here and, and you know, lend a good amount of support to the Ninth Circuit's ruling that just because there's a little bit of intermediary groundwater here, um, you know, Scalia said, it doesn't have to be direct, and so the Clean Water Act applies. What's the rebuttal? Well, I think there's there's some debate about Whose opinion is it control is controlling in in that case? So we we can start there. I will say that the Trump administration, one of the first things that President Trump did when he took office, was issue an executive order directing EPA to revisit what constitutes waters of the United States, and look to Justice Scalia's decision uh, in the Rapanos case as guidance. So courts have traditionally used Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion as as the as the controlling opinion in that case, which which doesn't go in the direction that you mentioned. So I think there's some flux as to where where things go on that opinion. But to direct, address what I think Justice Scalia was getting at was when you where there are a series of connected pipes that eventually end up in surface waters and and not touching the groundwater interface. And, and the reason I say that is because the, re- the cases he was referencing were dealing with varied connections and, and stormwater flows. He didn't mention groundwater in that setting. And also because groundwater just traditionally has not been regulated under the Clean Water Act like this. It, 
the, the prior to the Maui County case, the only other circuit court cases to deal with the issue had had found that it does not that the NPDES program does not reach discharges to groundwater. The most prominent one came out of the Seventh Circuit. It was called Village of Okanamawak. I'm saying it wrong, butchering the name. Mm-hmm. I apologize if you live in, in that town. Uh, but but what was going on in that case was Target wanted to build a, uh, a distribution center and a, a neighboring community didn't want them to move in. So they filed a number of challenges. One of them was dealt with air quality and trucks driving to the discharge center, distribution center. The other one dealt with a retention pond it was going to collect all the storm flow runoff that comes off the parking lot and make sure that it doesn't discharge pollutants, basically, uh, sediment, oil, brake dust, whatever, uh, into creeks nearby. Uh, and the, the residents of this nearby community that didn't want to have the, the distribution center built alleged that this retention pond was connected to uh, by, via groundwater to Washington United States and therefore needed the NPDES permit. Court rejected it, said no. We've never regulated uh, groundwater with the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act does not state that that's you know, that it applies to groundwater, and we're not going to extend it that far. But I, I, I so that's so I think this case is very important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's 1994, so you had at least a decade before this Maui, 15 years before this Maui case started, and that's the guidance that you had as as a, an operator of you know pick something that that implicates this this thing. The guidance you had was discharges to groundwater don't aren't covered by the act. Secondly, which is I think really important for the for the entities that signed on to our our briefing is, I would argue I think most people recognize that a retention pond designed to keep sediment, brake dust, oil, all the bad stuff that comes off a parking lot when it rains out of our surface waters is an environmentally good thing, and and application of this rule of law to that kind of setting hinders projects infrastructure and things that are actually good for the environment. So I suppose what would be the alternative? What are some of like, you know, the practical consequences if the Ninth Circuit's ruling gets upheld and those sorts of approaches by, you know, you list a, a broad and, and varied cohort of, of entities as part of your uh, group of Amici, you know, what different approaches would they need to take? What would be the, the negative fallout for public agencies that you think the, the court should really have in mind when it's approaching this case? Well, I think you know, we can go back to the to stormwater systems. I mean, in California, Southern California in particular, one of the major sources of ocean pollution is, is runoff when it rains. And, and we've mm-hmm. certainly seen that this year with, with all the rain we're getting out there. And, and for the past 20 years, the, the state of California, in conjunction with EPA, has been working really hard, at requiring cities and and small communities to implement best management practices and other structural controls to limit the way that stormwater runs off our streets, into creeks, and out into the oceans. And a big part of that is controls like that one from the, the Seventh Circuit case: sediment basins, groundwater infiltration basins, rain gardens, and and it it really a ruling like this would really leave the ability to build that kind of infrastructure in question. If every discharge that goes into the groundwater and out needs its own NPDES permit or needs an NPDES permit, it's going to discourage the construction of that kind of thing because it means that if you're not, if you, if you're not maintaining it properly or, or, I mean, that's not the right term. If you're, if you need to maintain it, you might need to get a new permit. If the water that goes through it takes out sediment, but still leaves nitrogen. 
you might have to comply with nitrogen effluent limits at the end of the, uh, that go through the groundwater that comes out and they're very hard to calculate. Um, so there's some just logistical difficulties that would make it pretty infeasible to build this kind of thing and, and scare people away to make it so that it's, we're adding barriers to construction of, of environmentally positive projects. The other, in, in the other settings, you know, so that's, that's if you wanted to build, say, constructed wetlands or, or these retention basins for the stormwater setting. Uh, in, in, the, in the water supply setting, constructing groundwater infiltration basins is a great way to store recycled water for future use. And put that water in a, in a basin, and it may migrate to places that are, that are surface waters and cover are, are included in the definition of waters of the United States. And under this case law, if it was if it was blessed by the by the Supreme Court, the the recycled water, which tends to have slightly higher total dissolved solids or can have chlorine in it, can have nitrogen again in it, um, these are things that are classified as pollutants under the under the Clean Water Act. And again, you trigger the the need to have effluent limits on it, and fines if you're higher than the effluent limits, and potentially being sued by people because you can. Anyone can sue under the Clean Water Act. There's citizen supervisions. Again, putting up barriers and increased costs and making projects that are environmentally good and good for society, I would argue, more difficult. In the sewage treatment setting, I, I think it's even it's even worse. I mean, in the sense of our sewage treatment lines in most cities around the country, they periodically leak. They're old, they leak. And they leak into the groundwater, and it's really hard to find where those leaks go. And, and the way that the Clean Water Act deals with this and the way the EPA deals with this is it requires the, the sewage treatment plant operators to have a, what's called an I&I plan, infiltration, and I, you know, the other I is escaping me. But basically it means that the sewage treatment plant operator will go through its system and over a time period fix its lines and replace them and, and do that because when it rains, water will infiltrate through cracks or, or when it's not raining, sewage will infiltrate out through cracks. But in order to go through and replace the entire sewer system in a city all at once would be prohibitively expensive uh, and, and probably not feasible. Yet, if the Ninth Circuit decision is, becomes law across the country, many, many sewage treatment operators are going to be stuck in that position because their discharges, the leaks through their, through their pipes uh, would, would be classified as discharges uh, that need MPDS permits. And it's really hard. You're gonna, you have to have a, a monitoring for each point. I mean, it's hard to even know where those those cracks are. I mean, you know, the most likely outcome is that we've what we've already seen are that environmental groups will file lawsuits uh, and allege that the entire system needs to be replaced and put a very very aggressive schedule on that and that schedules that often are not feasible for the treatment plant operators. It's expensive, it's time consuming. It's something that they do already because it something that needs to be done, but needs to be done in a way that makes sense fiscally as well so, and, and makes sense in the, in the context of operation of the plant. Um, and lastly, to come you know, sort of full circle on recycled water, one of the questions that has come up frequently after this is, what, what if you're using recycled water for irrigation? Uh, say it's a golf course or even just, just landscaping. Water that is put on the ground to, to water plants eventually makes it below the root zone and can migrate out to the ocean if, if, if someone's, you know, on the, on the, on the coast or it can, it can, you know, migrate to a stream. And are, are you going to need an NPDES permit just to use recycled water somewhere? And, and if so, you're going to discourage 
individual property owners from connecting to purple pipe systems that might be available, you know, and, and, and discourage people from using recycled water. So those are all negative outcomes I see of, you know, sort of facts on the ground of what would happen if this, if this uh, case becomes law national. Makes sense. I, I guess in, maybe we've already sort of covered this, but yeah, you've referenced some instances where, as you say, it'd be pretty tricky to exactly detect in a particular circumstance where a pollutant might be coming from or where it might be traveling to from, you know, some leaky pipe to a navigable waterway. I suppose, you know, if you apply the Ninth Circuit's rule, it's not a bright line rule. It doesn't say if you leach any sort of pollutant into the groundwater and however it might get to a navigable waterway, you are, are then violating the clean water. It's more the sort of thing that says here in this particular instance, it's pretty clear the route the pollutants took. And so, you know, we'll leave it to another day to decide if you, there are less or there are more tenuous situations that shouldn't require uh, Clean Water Act permitting. But I guess is kind of the main thrust of your argument that in these sorts of settings, the entities that are being regulated you know, require enough clarity to, to know, okay, a bright line rule here is that groundwater is is regulated by you know, state entities, but it's not a part of the Clean Water Act calculus. Is, is that why it's so important, you think, for there to be a, a bright line rule? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and and I want to be clear, though, because the Ninth Circuit decision establishes a fairly traceable standard. So anytime a discharge to the United, waters of the United States is fairly traceable to a point source, then the, the MPDS program would be triggered. And the court wasn't super clear about how fairly traceable, what, what that means. And, and so it could be, they just mean where groundwater is acting exactly as if it were a pipe. Or it could mean something much more broad than that. We don't know. And, and that's hugely problematic from the, from the context of, of the universe of what could be regulated. And also from the context of what kinds of infrastructure might get implicated. But, but to answer your question about, yeah, public agencies in particular, everybody, business, everybody wants certainty. We want to know what we're doing and what the laws are. And until the Ninth Circuit issued its decision, the law was, or the only circuit courts that had you know, heard this issue had said, discharges that go through groundwater are not covered by the NPDES program. They're regulated by the states or they're regulated under some other, uh, one of the other federal environmental laws that cover hazardous waste or, or, you know, like, or other waste flows. So things have been built, people have made assumptions, things have been designed without anticipation that, that this regulatory scheme would be applied. Uh, and and it, the regulatory scheme does does cause issues. And I, I didn't. I, one other issue I thought I would mention is worthwhile is um, if you think about the potable water supply system, like you turn on your tap and stuff. And if you live in a community, if there's been a power out, oftentimes there'll be a boil water order issued um, after the power outage. Uh, and 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 one of the reasons for that is because the way potable water is delivered to homes is under pressurized pipes. And so if the power went out, the, the water provider often was unable to keep the light pipes pressurized. So they say, okay, boil water for a certain amount of time until we know that the clean water is going through. So the, the reason they deal they deliver the water under pressurized pipes is because those pipes are just as leaky as the sewage, connect, uh, sewage collection ones I mentioned. And in order to make sure that groundwater that's surrounding the pipes as they, as they go through the ground doesn't go into your water and 
you know, therefore give you some, you know, a, a, a polluted water supply that you're drinking at, at your tap, the, the pipes are kept under pressure. So the water always goes out. And, you know, by definition, that, that potable water is now going out to the groundwater. And it's designed to do that because it keeps us safe. And under this kind of uh, ruling, the potable water that would be going out and then making its way to a, a creek, if that was what, what happened, would trigger an MPDS requirement. And it's just, again, another layer in, in that the, there is a difficulty in determining even how to regulate that kind of thing under the Potable Water Act. You mentioned that there has been some disagreement as to whose opinion really was controlling in that most recent major water law case before the Supreme Court, say Justice Scalia's or Justice Kennedy's concurrence. Of course, both those uh, gentlemen have now departed from the U.S. Supreme Court with the newly constituted court. Yeah, how, how do you think it might view this particular case or this particular issue? I think folks that, you know, when the high court grants a case, it's, it's, uh, the odds are usually better it's going to reverse. Do you think uh, the Ninth Circuit is, is right for a reversal here before the court? I mean, I, I hope so for you know, all the reasons we talked about. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that the court chose this case uh, because there are several others pending. Um, that, that had also uh, sought review. And, and the reason I'm happy in this case is because it, it definitely presents the issue in terms of the, of the, the public good impacts that might happen as well. Yeah. You know, the, the other cases that were pending were dealing with, with uh, oil pipelines and things that are easy to paint as environmentally negative. Um, and, and when you get rules of law coming out of that kind of setting, it, it doesn't always take into account the, the things that we all do every day. They contribute and they all we need that we all need as a society um, that will be impacted by a decision. But um, I, I'm optimistic, uh, and I and I hope that the court would reverse in this case because I think there's other there's other regulatory schemes that adequately cover this kind of situation, and you don't need to extend the Clean Water Act in this in this way. And in fact, if you do, it'll it'll cause problems. You know, there's one last aspect to this too that, that we didn't kind of cover, and it's that relationship between the federal government and the states. Uh, and this kind of activity has, has traditionally been, been regulated under the state's non-point source program. And, and you, you can view the, the Ninth Circuit's decision as saying, no, we're federalizing this activity. And, and there's a real question, is it, are the states able to do this on their own and isn't that better? Or do we need the federal government to come in and, and take this over? Uh, and, and again, our position obviously from our briefs is that no, this Clean Water Act doesn't need to be extended in this manner at this time. There's other there's other schemes, both at the state level and the federal level, that cover things appropriately. Well, this will certainly be a case to watch out for next term, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Andre Monette from Best Best and Krieger, thanks very much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. That's our show for February 22nd, 2019. Thanks to both of my guests, David Henkin from Earth Justice and Andre Monette from Best Best and Krieger. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. CLE credit, as I said, is available to listeners of the show and can be easily obtained. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Take that in one hour of credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to find us on the various podcast streaming avenues where you get this, sorts, this sort of media. 
Just search for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. Finding us there and in particular subscribing and rating and reviewing us is much appreciated. So it helps us know what we could do better and also lets other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>